Welcome to episode seven of the podcast Own It. I'm your host, Jordan Boditsky, and today I'm pleased to invite onto the podcast Andrea Paquette. In 2009, Andrea created the Bipolar Babe Project and is now the president and co-founder of the Stigma Free Society, which she founded in 2010. Andrea is passionate about educating today's youth on societal stigmas, especially mental illness stigma that negatively affects people's perceptions of themselves and others. She, share, she shares her personal story of her struggles since being di diagnosed with bipolar disorder in 2005. However, this has not stopped Andrea. She is now an award-winning mental health activist, educator, facilitator, author, and speaker. It is through her story that she is able to share her personal views and educated opinions with the community on mental health and stigma. Andrea has been recognized for her work in the community. Along with several other awards, Andrea has been nominated as both the 2016 Top 20 Under 40 winner and the 2015 Provincial Courage to Come Back Award winner in the category of mental health. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today, Andrea. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Well, thank you. So let's uh, first begin by just discussing a little bit about the Stigma-Free Society. Um, can you just start off by discussing how the Stigma-Free Society has evolved over time? And second, how this charity has been able to grow and achieve the goals in which they have set out in the last several years? Yes, thank you. I would love to do that. It has uh, quite a unique beginning, very grassroots. Back in, well, it all begins with my own diagnosis of having bipolar disorder. And that was in 2005 when I was diagnosed. So that was quite a while ago. Uh, however, when it did happen, um, we get, Anna will get into that a little bit later, more of the detail of the personal story, but that was the catalyst many years later to want to create an organization that would bring education, support, and to let people know that they're not alone. This was my mission, and in 2009, I created a brand, a t-shirt only, that said Bipolar Babe, and that was my t-shirt. This began with an idea of creating a lighter approach, and that was in 2009, and I didn't know how to start a charity. <laughs> it's a big thing, and I just instead focused on the passion of sharing my story, kind of had to put that aside with all that paperwork, and it was very confusing and overwhelming. But as I started networking, I held a fundraising event, and I did that because I met a wonderful charity specialist who helps people build charities, Robin Holden, and he helped me build originally the Bipolar Disorder Society of British Columbia in 2010, where I was the first president. And then we renamed as Stigma Free Society in 2016 with a new co-founder, Dave Richardson. Nice. I think that's amazing, the work that you guys have started. And obviously you're saying, you know, it starts uh, very simple and it's hard to kind of build it all the way up. And what you've kind of been able to do so far for the mental health community is amazing. So as I'm sure you're aware, the name of my podcast is Own It. And you've done exactly just that. I wanted to ask you about your story with mental health, particularly bipolar, and how you've been able to proudly own your diagnosis and not let it interfere with your happiness and success. I'm sure you were not always as open as you are now, but I wanted to ask you, at what point in your life did you recognize symptoms of bipolar and feel the need to seek out support from a professional prior to becoming diagnosed? Well, that's a very interesting question and, and has a lot of background because when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I didn't know I had bipolar disorder. And that happens to a lot of people. And I'll just give you a little bit of background uh, to be very candid. And I feel it's really important to be authentic in these situations when you're sharing your personal story. So for myself, back, I was around 25 years old. 
And I started seeing things, hearing things that weren't real. So as I also started getting into this elevated manic state, which is a high mood, talking really fast, having tons of energy that's so overwhelming to the point where you just can't contain it. And then it went into a full-blown psychosis, which can happen for people with bipolar, even though it's more prevalent for people with schizophrenia. I ended up calling the police. Uh, there was a 911 call that I made. I thought somebody was banging on my door trying to break in and I was panicked. And when the police officer came, he sat with me and he questioned me and so politely said after our 20 minute conversation that he wants to call me an ambulance so that they could take me to the mental health ward at the hospital to be assessed. In that moment, honestly, Jordan, like I didn't think anything was wrong with me. I thought I was just experiencing something special. I didn't, couldn't tell the difference between reality and non-reality. When I was diagnosed as I was that night, um, well, a few days later, but brought in that night, I very quickly diagnosed with bipolar. I thought my life was over. I thought this is it for me. I'm always going to be sick. I don't really think I could get better. And when I got out of the hospital, I tried. I drove back across the country uh, to Victoria. I was in Ottawa at the time, pursuing my political dreams in the House of Commons and it all fell to pieces. And when I came back to the island here on Vancouver Island, I attempted to take my life. And I ended up in the ICU for three days and I nearly didn't make it. But after meeting an amazing psychiatrist who has been my psychiatrist for 17 years, he helped me see a light at the end of the tunnel. He reminded me, hey, you're really capable. You have a lot to offer the world. And as time would go on, it took many years to come to a place of acceptance. But that's when in 2009, four years later, after going to Korea for two years and speaking, uh, teaching English, which was amazing, to get away, I needed to heal. And I, when I got back, that's when the bipolar babe idea just flooded in my mind and I needed to pursue it. Right. And as the psychiatrist said, you know, you had a purpose and that's exactly what you're doing now. And I mean, I, I want to say thank you for sharing that. I know it's a, it's a deep part of your past and, and something you, you share now publicly and, and you're proud of, and you're trying to help uh, people so that they never have to experience what you went through. So I think it's amazing. Like I said, the things you're doing. Um, my next question. So my last guest on the podcast shared a quote saying the following, the heaviest weight at the gym is the front door. Essentially, this suggests that often the most difficult step in someone's life is to feel confident going outside their comfort zone to receive support from a friend, family member or professional. With this in mind, can you please share how you were able to feel comfortable going out to seek support? And is there any advice that you can offer to individuals who may still feel not yet ready to take this very important first step on their journey to owning it? I was never seeking support at all in the beginning. As I, as I told you, I didn't know, but as time would go on, I had choice in whether I wanted to have supports, whether that was medication, therapy, a psychiatric team. There are so many things available, but for myself in the beginning, there was so much stigma. And stigma, people often think of societal stigma where they are being judged but there's also the internal stigma where we judge ourselves. 
And there was a constant theme of shame in my life. And it was like that for quite a number of years. And even when I founded the Bipolar Babe t-shirt, that was the beginning of being able to even think about admitting my truth to the world. Because Jordan, in 2009, nobody was talking about mental health. It was a major, major taboo. And then when I started doing presentations willingly and going into a school through a friend who was a counselor and spoke to 15 students as a start, I uh, did a PowerPoint, shared my story, encouraged them to reach out for help. And when I walked out of that classroom, that was part of my therapy. It was sharing my truth and encouraging other people. As time unfolded as well, I told you that I met a psychiatrist. I then chose to stay with that psychiatrist because if I didn't have the support of a professional, I don't feel like I would have come as far as I have. And when I refused medications, I just didn't want to take them. There was a lot of stigma around and still is around medications where we feel like we are weak or we are not good enough. And I, he said to me when I said no, he said, well, is what you're doing working for you, Andrea? <laughs> and I, I was in there for an attempt on my second hospitalization. And I looked at him and realized he's the expert and I'm the patient here and I need to listen to him. And so I took the advice of the medication I've been on for 17 years, not something everybody has to do or wants to do, but for myself, that is a personal choice and reaching out for support. There's so many things, peer support groups are out there. I did quite a bit of that. I accepted having the help of a psychiatric nurse who did cognitive behavioral therapy, a type of therapy that helps people with mental illness. And I soon realized the more support, the better. Right. As you kind of mentioned, you know, back then it wasn't, people didn't really talk about it as much as they do now. And, and the, the conversation around mental health wasn't as prevalent. Um, so with that, I mean, it's a, it's a conversation and a, and a question I have for you down the line here. But um, at this point, just from my previous guests on the podcast, again, many of them suggest that having a diagnosis really helped them feel more confident with their mental health in the sense that having a name to how they were feeling was comforting. I'm curious if you also felt the same way. Well, going back when I, like I mentioned, was diagnosed initially, uh, I couldn't accept it initially. It was just too overwhelming. My mother also has schizoaffective disorder. I have bipolar, but the mental illness is in the family. So I automatically attributed my fate to hers, which wasn't good. And yes, accepting my diagnosis eventually was one of the most empowering amazing things that I could have done for my life because with bipolar disorder, receiving that diagnosis, it created a path for me and there was a door metaphorically. And I had a choice to go through that door or just keep living the life that I had. And through that door was advocacy. It was speaking, it was building a charity. And then I look back and with this diagnosis, if I had never been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, would I initially named myself the Bipolar Babe and then the Bipolar Disorder Society of BC and 11 years of a really beautiful, helpful charity that where I work full time as president and leader of this organization. And it's such, such an honor. So I do understand when people say that uh, they feel more confident naming it, but I have to say when I first got named, as having bipolar, 
it wasn't possible for me at that time. I encourage people to consider when they're ready um, to own it. Now, I wanted to kind of talk about uh, some of the strategies you may have used. Um, obviously, everyone's strategies for coping with their mental health is a bit different. But if you reflect on yourself back in your early 20s until now, how has the strategies used to cope with mental health changed over the years, if at all? Yeah, so from 2005 to 2009 was when I was in my 20s. And going back that far, I have to say I was really resistant to a lot of supports. I wasn't very active in, in wanting to do much else at that time than just medication. I felt alone a lot of the times and that perhaps nothing could really help me. It wasn't until I got older and more seasoned in having my mental illness that I decided if I didn't support myself with a multitude of different things and I was really not going to have the kind of life that I wanted. I have done so much for self-care uh, to take really good care of myself, especially in the last um, the last year, most especially, honestly, during COVID, but for the last many years as well. A medical team is very important with a psychiatrist, a psychiatric nurse, uh, counselors, there's some free options out there depending on where you live. It's just really nice to talk about these things, even if it's just in private or to family and friends. If you don't have a personal support network, it's going to be very difficult to feel comfortable, heard, and understood. And as well, as I mentioned before, yes, the medications and the adherence to medications, like there's a big difference, right? You can take your medications and I don't feel like I was adhering to them 100%. Where now it's almost like, you know how you just brush your teeth at night. It's kind of like that same process. And so that spring brought me a lot of success and communicating with my psychiatrist when it doesn't. And now we're more in a partnership for our um, my medical treatment and not just like a top down kind of relationship. And lastly, my job brings me so much joy that really contributes to my mental health and my daily exercise regime. I work out in the mornings at home for 30 to 45 minutes every day, may take a rest day obviously here and there. But for me, without my exercise, I really wouldn't be on my game like I am. And I hear that a lot from everyone. I, I think the two things that stood out to me, I mean, I think they're all great strategies. I think the two things that you said that really stick out to me were the social support network is huge and the exercise again. And, and for, again, it's different for everyone, but uh, those are two things I hear a lot and it, and it does make a big difference. Um, you said your job. I want to kind of talk a little bit about that. You've done a lot of work in educating people around this, around stigma. Can you please speak to the stigma that you believe currently exists today in society and how, if at all, society has moved toward becoming more accepting and open of mental health? Well, there's many stigmas, right? And as a stigma-free society, we talk about many things, but we do have a focus, obviously, on mental health as our big uh, umbrella. But we also do recognize that there's a lot of stigma with things like developmental disabilities or race, even ageism, where people are discriminated against because they're too old, too young. Even people are judged on their physical appearance. There's stigma around that. There's a lot of discrimination, you know, judgment, and a lot of really tough things to face in the world. 
And at the Stigma Free Society, it's been an amazing experience because we have a pretty big team. Um, right now we're doing virtual presentations in schools and it has been amazing. Before we were doing in-person presentations about stigma overall with a focus on mental health, uh, discussing how to stay well, personal stories, lived experience is a really great way to connect with people when you're talking about mental health and the importance of reaching out for help. Uh, the society also currently has many toolkits, uh, these online resources like the student mental health toolkit, where there are downloadable resources and lesson plans for teachers and our new rural mental wellness toolkit for agricultural and rural communities, which is actually one of our newest initiatives that we released about two weeks ago. So we are doing a lot online now, if not, well, everything. We're more things were in person, especially our presentations, but I feel now we're reaching even more people. So it's bringing us to national heights and eventually North American, which is very exciting. I think the silver lining to the pandemic is truly, I mean, you know, everything at first everyone said, oh, it sucks that everything's virtual, but I think you can, as you're mentioning, you can reach a lot more people when things are virtual. So I guess in that sense, that's uh, one of the positive things with the pandemic. Um, but just yeah. as a follow-up to last question, you're doing a lot of great work with Stigma-Free Society and creating a platform for openness to discuss around mental health. Are there any other ways you believe as a society we can move forward to becoming more open and accepting of mental health? You kind of already discussed about this, but are there any other yeah. strategies? Yeah, definitely. I think it's really doing self-check-ins is a big thing. We have the Stigma-Free Pledge, for instance, on our website, where you make a commitment to be as stigma-free as you can and to move forward in that journey, because being stigma-free is truly an ongoing process. Nobody could snap their fingers and they are completely accepting, aware, and understanding. It's not realistic. We're humans. So if I see a situation and I throw a negative judgment on that right away, I step back and think, oh, what could I do differently next time? So it's not only about listening to other people, education, presentations. Yes, that's very important, but we can do self-check-ins with ourselves and know that if, as well, if we educate ourselves too, we go online, we find reliable information. There is a lot of good blogs out there and make sure you're looking at quality info. So those are a couple of things that people can do is those check-ins, that self-analysis, that commitment to change and also um, getting the facts. Yeah, I think those are a lot of good points for sure. Um, so the Sigma Free Society has done some incredible work at the national level in offering preventative education to help end the stigma around mental health. So really to the parents that may be listening, what advice would you offer to them when it comes to educating and discussing mental health with their children? It's very hard to discuss mental health with your children, but I feel we can help make that easier. So a few things. First and foremost, as I mentioned before, we have our student mental health toolkit. The parents, guardians, and caregivers section is completely open it doesn't cost anything. Uh, student mental health is really for people at home as well. One of the things that we have in there, like, you know, uh, downloadable resources about what is anxiety and talking about what that feels like. Because when you're talking to your children, it's going to be a whole other level for them to truly understand what mental health is about. Uh, it's not 
really just about your brain. It's about your overall well-being. And I think it has to be explained that way. When sharing about uh, mental health as well, it's always great to have mental health check-ins with your children. And that can look like many things. We have that on our website where we have a checklist and people can go through and talk about how they're feeling. And as well, keeping children busy and active obviously is very important. So we have an activity generator and ways for parents to connect with their children. It's also very important that parents know sometimes that they can't do it all and they're not doctors and they're not professionals. And to know they're not weak if they reach out for help to professionals to help their child, because I've seen that a lot where there's that fear that they will be judged that they're a bad parent and it's not a parent's fault. That is one of the biggest things that I always like to emphasize because a lot of the times it seems like parents do blame themselves if something goes wrong with their child. Uh, mental health is a beautiful thing in the sense that with mental illness, you heal. And I believe there's always hope. I don't believe anyone is a lost cause or can't heal or get better. It just takes some time. It took 11 years for my medication, my medication regime to fully be in bloom where I am where I am today, really healthy and stable, could have a full-time job, travel, healthy relationships, and that is possible for anyone. Yeah, I believe the exact same thing for sure. I think, uh, yeah, it's it's about people reaching out and and uh, there, it's true, there is no lost cause if they, if everyone, it goes back to the social support network and, and reaching out to individuals like you were saying. So um, oh, another thing, Jordan, about that question that I forgot. That's okay, go uh, ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's really important that parents take care of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Taking right. care of themselves and not getting into that burnout place. Uh, there's some government supports out there when children get diagnosed that parents can apply for respite where they can take their own time and, and they could take care of their own mental health. That's a good point. Thank you for adding that. Um, and now I'm not sure if it's, uh, if it may... Uh, I guess, produce the same answer for uh, teachers and professors as it does, like you just mentioned, for parents. But I guess if we think of the role of an educator now, trying to pro provide a platform for openness to their students who may be struggling, um, what can they do to, like I said, really provide a platform for openness for their students who may be struggling during a busy, stressful school year? That's a really important question. And I see it as being very important that professors, educators, teachers, uh, school counselors, school staff, uh, that they realize, and many of them do, that during COVID and even beyond, there's always going to be students who are struggling with their mental health issues and some things that they can do that I had provided for me when I got my degree was accommodation. And so sometimes when people get sick with their mental illness or mental health, whatever it is, they need some extra time to hand in that paper. Maybe they need some time off. So there is quite often at universities and colleges, most from what I know, where you can talk to counselors and that should be encouraged by teachers as something that uh, students can do. And as well, as I mentioned before, the student mental health toolkit, where we have lesson plans from grade four to grade 12. And with those lesson plans, it's all about mental health, mental wellness, diversity. It has an indigenous lens and so many different uh, opportunities for downloadable resources as well. So we 
all can benefit from education, doing things together, creating connection. And we really love when professors and teachers can be empathetic, if not empathetic, sympathetic and be fair. Right. And I mean, I can't speak to other schools, but definitely uh, at Western, where I go to school now, um, they have implemented a lot of those strategies. Um, there is something that exists called the self-report. Um, and students are now actually able to self-report assignments um, or exams if they need to without an, any explanation for, for their reasoning behind it. So um, I think that goes a long way, like you're saying. Um, so with my next question, many individuals may feel afraid that their mental health may interfere with their ability to find happiness and live a successful life. Is there any advice you can share to those individuals that perhaps you would have wished you heard in your mid-20s? Yes, I thought that my life was doom and gloom and it was always going to be that way. There was a point I was so sick where I could barely even grocery shop and not even be able to make a meal for myself. Everything felt like climbing Mount Everest. And it wasn't until I got actual help that I was able to move forward with my life and understand and accept that you know what, what I needed to hear at that time and no one told me was it's going to be okay. It may sound very trite and very simple, but it's true. A lot of times when you're diagnosed with a mental illness, a lot of people think that that's the end for them. They're never going to be successful. They're never going to have that happy life. And that's exactly how I felt right from the beginning. Not everybody does, but I'll tell you, some people may feel a big relief when they get their diagnosis. But for me and many others, it's like being buried under a massive boulder. It's not a good thing at the time. And over time, growing with acceptance of myself, growing with my mental illness, the knowledge I needed to equip myself to be the best that I could be. And definitely happiness comes again. There's going to be dark days, but the sun will always shine. Right. And in terms of offering others now with the tools to support a friend with mental health, is there any advice you can offer a friend or a family member who's supporting a friend with mental health or a family? Yes. Member? On, yeah, definitely. Uh, on the student mental health toolkit, one of our downloadable resources is how do I help a friend? And so I do suggest going there, but I could also talk to that point. One of the things about helping uh, a friend or family member is patience. That is one of the traits that we need to apply and cultivate when we're dealing with people who have uh, mental illness or experiencing mental health issues, because a lot of times that person is going to resist getting help. I can't even count how many emails of distress that I get of people saying, my sister, for example, has bipolar disorder, is denying it, doesn't want to see a doctor, or another one where somebody just doesn't want to stick to their medications, they're in a manic episode, and there's a lot of these crises. So one thing that I've just said a lot of times, one of the best things you can actually do for somebody is uh, listen and be patient. And ask them, what can I do to support you? That's one of the biggest pieces that I think people just don't know how to employ because quite often we're, we are uh, problem fixers. You know, we want to like figure everything out. And instead, sometimes it's good to uh, listen and see how you can support that person with them asking for the help. Right. And give them the kind of the control 
um, to kind of make their own decisions. Exactly. I, I agree with that for sure. Um, not to put you on the spot too much here, but are there any stories you can recall where the stigma free society was able to help someone who really internalized their mental health, eventually speak up and, and really own their, their diagnosis or just their mental health in general? Yeah, there's been amazing opportunities for people to share with student feedback. We get written feedback from our presentations. The most beautiful thing happened just last night. I ended up getting this Instagram message from this young girl. She's 20 years old. And she said, 10 years ago, you came into my classroom. And I was shocked. She remembered. And she reached out to me saying, she felt so much gratitude that I was open with my story and, and that I shared it authentically. And I went in there and she said, that must've been so hard for you, especially at that time. And she wants help. And she remembered some of the symptoms and things that I was talking about. And she said, I always felt like something was wrong, but then I thought of you and I didn't feel so quote crazy, right? Unquote. That's how she put it. And so that was really touching to hear as well. We have had students provide feedback. Uh, one young girl said, my grandmother has schizophrenia. I haven't talked to her for three years because of the shame and I judged her, but now I want to spend time with her. I want to get to know her. Mental illness is not a scary thing. And it goes on. And one more, uh, a young man in grade 11 came up to me after a presentation and he said, wow, I've been experiencing psychosis since grade six. And I just didn't know what it was. And I couldn't name it. And I asked him, would you be comfortable going to talk to the counselor? And he did. And he got the help that he needed. We have many presenters within the society. So many, uh, I'd say almost 15 at this point where we used to have four. So as you mentioned uh, about COVID, yeah, it's created a lot of opportunity for us to reinvent ourselves, adapt and be more effective. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all great, uh, great stories. And they're so heartwarming to, uh, to hear and you know, it's kind of the reason why I started this podcast and really just anything you can do to help people. And, and it's always those stories that make you uh, or reassure you of why what you're doing is amazing and, and helping others. So I think it's great. Um, in terms of COVID, like you're just mentioning, back to COVID, of course, um, how do you believe <laughs> the pandemic has impacted individuals struggling with mental health? Well, as you know, as probably everybody has noticed, mental health is a uh, the top, the hottest topic everyone's talking about right now, because people are dealing with exacerbated uh, mental health issues or mental illness is getting worse. Suicide rates have gone up. Uh, these facts are sadly true. Uh, during COVID-19, I hear a lot of about people struggling, especially our young people. They're not able to participate in things like graduation or uh, being with their friends a lot of the times and they find themselves isolated. I remember back when I was in my teens and high school, my friends were my life. That was like the biggest piece of what made me happy. So you're definitely seeing uh, a lot of confusion as well. Like my little niece uh, she's 13 and she says, I can hang around with Becca at school, but I can't after I really miss her. I want to see my friend. So it is a very difficult situation. I, I really um, feel there is hope in this situation. This won't last forever. 
So I believe we just need to remain strong. Please reach out to the Stigma Free Society, use our resources, our toolkits online, and know that in time, yeah, this will pass. That's good advice. Um, is there any advice now you can share to someone who is passionate about making a difference in this world, but really is not sure where or when to start? I mean, obviously you said at the very beginning, it was kind of, uh, you didn't really know how to start, but eventually you, you grew it to, to be uh, so successful and impactful as, as it is going today with the Sigma Free Society. How does someone start to, and how can someone really make an impact? We all have a gift uh, or many gifts of things that we're good at. Uh, for myself, I knew and felt that I just wanted to speak. That was something that I felt maybe I had a little bit of talent with. I wasn't that great in the beginning, but then I cultivated and, and kept practicing. And I've been a professional speaker for 10 years. I've, and that was my, my path. So for other people, they may have a similar desire and path. And I always just say, you know, we often want to start where we are in the beginning and be at the end fast. Enjoy the journey, right? And really focus in on the passion. Say if somebody wants to write and, you know, share their story with the world, but in a smaller way, start a blog, right? And as well, maybe it's just about somebody who uh, wants to share their truth and talk about the fact that they have mental illness. Start with your family and friends. So it's truly about taking incremental steps towards what you want to do, which is exactly the advice that I feel like giving because that's how I did it. I wanted to create a charity right away, sign all the papers, make it. I didn't have the team. Enroll people in your dream. Talk about your dream if you're comfortable about it. I just kept talking, talking, talking to everybody how much I wanted to do speeches and go into classrooms. And eventually people were inviting me in. So I always say, be proud of your gifts and ensure that you're putting yourself out there, especially when you're comfortable. Yeah, I think dreams are so important and I think everyone should have them. But I think along with dreams, I mean, we have to chase after them and set those dreams to to be our goals and then and then work toward them. So, um, yeah, I think that's awesome advice. So with my last question for you today, is there anything really you would say that has been the most rewarding for you in terms of all the amazing things you've accomplished and helped people with? If you reflect I on everything. To... Oh, sorry. sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I definitely have uh, some very rewarding things. It's hard to like pick. I'll, I'll pick a couple if that's okay, Jordan. So I have to say working with my new co-founder, Dave Richardson, for the last five years, he was the ignition in the fire with the uh, role mental wellness toolkit that we have, uh, having grown up on a farm. And so it's really nice to have somebody who shares the inspiration with me and I'm not the only founder now and I've really enjoyed that relationship and guidance and mentorship as well because he's also our chairman of our board of directors. I have to say though the most absolutely rewarding thing is the feedback from the students when you read about and know the impact that our organization all our presenters and when I read things like from that 20 year old girl on Instagram yesterday. That's how I know I'm actually making a difference. She remembered that it was okay to have a mental illness and asked for advice on where to get a diagnosis and support. That's really rewarding. That's the kind of stuff that brings tears to my eyes because 
if people are getting help, that's what I said right in the beginning of this interview, there's always help and there's always hope. Yeah. Andrea, I want to say, say, say thank you, excuse me, so much uh, for joining us today and giving me your time. Um, it was definitely a pleasure listening to your stories and, and sharing your, all your advice. It, uh, it was really helpful and I learned a lot today from you. So I want to say thank you for joining me and uh, I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. It was a great honor. Have a lovely day. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in and listening to episode seven of the podcast, Own It, featuring Andrea Paquette and myself. Please go follow my Instagram page at ownit underscore podcast and please stay tuned for more episodes.